you have your Bible, let me invite you to take it and turn with me once more to the 10th chapter of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10. This is a passage we began to look at uh, last Sunday morning. But Daniel chapter 10 is a strange and remarkable passage of Scripture that really has much to teach us about the subject of spiritual warfare, uh, the reality of both holy and unholy angels. And this is a passage that reminds us of how the Bible ultimately shows us that there is more to life than what simply meets the eye. Now, I know that the modern mind, the skepticism of the modern mind, would reject that notion and instead opts for a completely secular worldview which has become increasingly popular and really has become the worldview, the predominant worldview in Western culture. Back in October of 2019, um, Pew Research Center released a news report, and listen to the title of the report, but it said, in the United States, decline of Christianity continues at a rapid pace. And basically, the research indicated that even though 65% of Americans identified as Christians when asked about their religion, it represented a decrease of 12% from the previous decade when that same report was carried out. Now, what I found sobering was this. The decline was particularly pronounced among younger Americans And a third of those who were 35 and younger reported no religious affiliation whatsoever. Now, someone who's written a lot about this uh, very subject was Dr. Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern Seminary. But uh, last year, he released a book uh, called uh, The Gathering Storm. And he said that the most familiar word for the process that we're witnessing that's going on in American society is secularization, a process that's been taking hold in modern societies since the dawn of the modern age. And he says that it really doesn't mean that all people in these societies are totally secular or even irreligious, but it does mean that Christianity, which forged the moral and spiritual worldview of Western civilization, It's gradually being displaced as the society is progressively becoming more secularized. And really the key issue, he says, is that society is distanced from Christian theism as the fundamental explanation of the world and as the moral structure of human society. And so now, here's what that means. The predominant worldview held now by a majority of those in the West is heavily influenced by this underlying assumption that automatically rules out the supernatural. Rather than unseen forces serving as the explanation behind what is seen and what is visible, secularism and its corresponding naturalistic worldview says that reality consists only of that which is visible. Which is why a skeptic would say something, they won't believe in anything unless they can see it or touch it. And that flows out of that worldview that rules out the supernatural and adopts only a naturalistic way of thinking. And so the thing is, this has really become the new religion in the West. 
with its own basic assumptions for which there is no proof, but it sets man up as his own authority. And really, it's very ironic. You say, why are you saying all of that? Because listen, as believers, we appeal to a much higher authority, don't we? Hebrews 11.3 says it's by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And there is no explanation for the things that are seen apart from the existence of that which is unseen. And so the ancient worldview of the Bible understands that reality exists in two worlds, the seen and that which is unseen that which is visible and that which is invisible, that which is physical and that which is spiritual. Now here's the thing, the prophet Daniel understood that what was seen ultimately is influenced by what was unseen. And man, he really learns that lesson here in this 10th chapter. So if you've got your Bible there, Daniel chapter 10, I wanna begin reading, and I wanna read this text again, beginning with verse number one. The Bible says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. The idea is he was fasting, he was praying, and he didn't bathe for three weeks. Now let me tell you something. If you're there, online worship is good on Sunday for you. Let me just go ahead and say that, okay? (laughs) Didn't take a bath. He was praying, he was fasting. But on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, which is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. And his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. And so I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, Your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. 
The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what's inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And we'll stop reading there. I want to speak from this subject uh, once more, an invisible war. Because that's what's being described here in this 10th chapter, which really serves as an introduction to the vision of, Uh, that Daniel is going to be given, as well as a prophecy that really sums up the remaining message of the book of Daniel, chapters 10, 11, and 12. Now, there's really a series of four visions that that Daniel is given throughout uh, the book of Daniel, and the greatest, uh, uh, as far as magnitude, content, the largest of these visions is this vision that's given at the end of the book itself. And really, it's a vision that involves the nation of Israel and the conflict in the land. And there's some things that are going to be revealed to Daniel that will even have impact in the last days, which is still yet future. But the prophet Daniel understood, and he comes to understand in a very vivid way, that ultimately what is seen is influenced by that which is unseen. And even though we live in a secular, unbelieving Uh, culture. Biblical truth demands that we stand where Daniel is rather than where our culture is on this subject of the supernatural. And if we're going to live counterculturally the way that Daniel did in his day, we need to have the same worldview that he had in his day. And that worldview basically involves three underlying assumptions. And in fact, we looked looked at these in sort of a preliminary way uh, last week. Uh, But I told you last week that there is indeed an unseen realm. That's something that the Bible uh, asserts. It's something that's true of the message of the Bible from cover to cover. There is an unseen realm. Uh, There are angelic principalities that are invisible to our physical eyesight, but they are there nonetheless. So there's an unseen realm, and there is an undetected enemy And that enemy is revealed to be the serpent, Satan, fallen angels who were spoken of also in Scripture. And these unholy angels are engaged in uh, combat with the holy angels. 
And therefore, there's a conflict that's raging in that unseen realm. There's an unseen realm, we have an undetected enemy, and because of that, life involves unwanted conflict. And that's why your life as a child of God really is ground zero. You remember what the Apostle Paul says in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, uh, we're to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Uh, He tells the Ephesian church that ultimately we wrestle not against flesh and blood, The enemy is not flesh and blood humanity, but humanity, unbelieving humanity, is blinded to these spiritual realities, and the enemy of our soul works overtime to keep humanity blinded to the truth of the gospel. And so our lives as believers involve spiritual conflict, spiritual warfare. And there may be somewhat of an apprehension in your mind when you take up this subject, We talk about the existence of angels and demons and and, and spiritual warfare and that kind of thing, and all of that makes us really uneasy. We want to avoid extremes. You want to avoid one extreme that, that looks for demons behind every bush, but you also want to avoid the extreme that, um, that totally uh, undervalues the truth that there is an unseen realm and there are angelic forces that war against the souls of believers. So you've got to strike a balance, and the Word of God keeps us there in that healthy balance. But this is not something to be feared. You know, God's not given believers a spirit of fear. Fear is one of the enemy's tactics. It's one of the tools that he has in his tool chest. And, and yet, we're to be sober, we're to be watchful. Peter says that the, the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. And the fact that he's described as a roaring lion means that he intends to terrify and paralyze you, terrorize you with fear. And that's part of his strategy. So our eyes need to be open to that. But folks, listen, the Bible says, greater is he who is in you as a believer than he who is in the world. Who is it that's in you as a believer? It's the Holy Spirit of God who's come to take up residence in your life. So here in this passage, there's a spiritual conflict that's raging, and Daniel's eyes are opened uh, to the nature of this battle, this conflict. Now notice a few things from this passage. Uh, To begin with, notice how uh, we're really given a picture of an agonizing prophet. The first few verses of this 10th chapter uh, shows us that Daniel is a man who is agonizing in prayer uh, on his knees before God. He's fasting, he's in a place of mourning, Verse 1 says it was during the third year of King Cyrus that a word was revealed to Daniel. And basically, verse 1 sort of serves as a summary statement of all that's going to be revealed to Daniel in chapter 10, 11, and 12. Now, you know that Cyrus was the Persian king who led the Persian empire to overthrow uh, the Babylonian empire. And honestly, one of the first things that Cyrus did was to allow the Jews to return to their native homeland. Uh, Through the prophet Jeremiah, God had promised that after 70 years of captivity, he would bring his people back home. And it was Cyrus who became the instrument in God's hands to begin that process. You remember back in chapter 9, just a few years before the events of chapter 10, Daniel had been praying, Daniel had been reading in Jeremiah, and had discovered that the, the captivity, the time of the captivity, was coming to a close. Well, now that we're in chapter 10, we're two years into Jews being allowed to return back to their native homeland. 
In fact, the first chapter of Ezra gives us the background to this. Uh, It says that the Lord stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom. He put it in writing, allowing the Jews to return home to Jerusalem and then to even begin rebuilding the temple. It was something that Cyrus allowed, and it was God who was sovereignly orchestrating those events. So I imagine that Daniel watched all of that happen with joy. Uh, He no doubt was encouraged by caravan after caravan of of Jews who were leaving Babylon to make their way back to their native homeland in Judah. That was something that he had been praying for. That happened in the first year of Cyrus's reign. Well, here in Daniel 10, a, a full two years have transpired. We're in the third year of Cyrus. We're told that a word was revealed to Daniel that involved great conflict as far as God's people were concerned. Daniel had been given a revelation. That revelation was true. He understood what it meant. And so he's he's responding to all that's really going on in the life of God's people here in this passage. But pay close attention to his behavior there in verses 2 and 3. Notice as he speaks in first person and tells us that during those days, he had been mourning for three weeks. He didn't eat food. He's fasting. He doesn't anoint himself or bathe. And you say, well, why exactly has he been a man in mourning? If those Jews had been allowed to return home two years before, why is it now that Daniel is mourning? Well, here's the thing. While those Jews certainly were allowed to return home, Ezra tells us that it was roughly only 42,000 who did so compared to the several hundred thousand that had been carried into captivity all those decades before. Which means that by the third year of King Cyrus, there were still a lot of Jews, the majority of Jews who had been carried away into captivity who had gotten very comfortable living in Babylon. So much so that their national identity, they were were being threatened with losing their identity, their unique distinction as being God's people. They'd become assimilated so much so into Babylonian culture that one person said the nation of sheep keepers had become a nation of shopkeepers in Babylon. And so only a fraction of God's people make it back home by the third year of King Cyrus. And even those that were back home, they faced great opposition even as they began to build the temple. They laid the foundation of the temple, but there was so much opposition against the rebuilding that the work stopped for a full 15 years and it wouldn't be picked back up again until the time of of Habakkuk. Isn't that an interesting thing? Or, Or Haggai. Isn't that an interesting thing? Man, there's some interesting parallels, I think, as far as where we are as the people of God in our day. There's been a lot to upend our lives this last year. There's been a lot to upend the church, ministry. But you know something? God's truth still marches on, and we as the people of God had better be, we better know who we are and whose we are. Lest we become so swept up with the spirit of the age that we become so assimilated into the culture around us that our thought patterns and our behavior patterns and our worldview is no different than the world around us. God intends for his people to be different, to be distinct, and in that way, we're salt and light. So this was something that burdens the heart of Daniel. He's mourning, he's praying, he's fasting over the situation. 
So he's an agonizing prophet, but then notice the second thing here. Notice how this agonizing prophet receives an awesome vision. A remarkable thing happens after three weeks of praying and fasting and agonizing in prayer. It's on the 24th day of the month there, verse 4. Daniel says, I was standing on the bank of the Tigris River. He says, I looked up and behold, I saw a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold around his waist. So he, he sees this most awesome sight. He sees the appearance of a majestic man, a man who can only be described as a man with radiant appearance. And he describes what he sees in vivid terms. The man's body was like beryl. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and legs like burnished bronze. And the sound of his voice, the words that he spoke, it was like the sound of the multitude. It was the most powerful encounter unlike anything that Daniel had witnessed in his lifetime. And by the way, that's saying a lot, especially when you consider all that Daniel had witnessed during his days in Babylon. Daniel had been the recipient of previous visions. Daniel had seen angels before. But I think there's more going on here than just simply the appearance of an angel. And scholars are somewhat divided on the nature and the identity of who this man in linen is. And let me just go ahead and tell you where I stand. I believe that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God himself that Daniel sees. And I don't necessarily believe that he's the only one who's conversing with Daniel in this, this passage in chapters 10, 11, and 12. Because at the close of the vision in chapter 12, there are at least two other angels who were there with this man in linen. So I believe that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God himself. And by the way, the description that Daniel gives of this man in linen, it's, it's nearly parallel to an encounter that the Apostle John has, you know, many centuries later on the Isle of Patmos. In fact, turn to Revelation chapter 1 for just a second and, and look at the way John describes someone that he saw. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and upon turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. It's the same description that Daniel gives in Daniel chapter 10, isn't it? In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Now you keep in mind the fact that Daniel had already seen a vision of the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days. Remember that vision that he has earlier uh, back in chapter 7. That was, a, that was in heaven viewed at a distance. Well, the vision here in chapter 10 is on earth and very near to where Daniel is standing. I like what Warren Wiersbe says about this. Uh, he says frequently in the biblical account, 
you find Christ appearing to his servants at special times, either to deliver a special message or prepare them for a special ministry. And then he goes through, you know, the biblical record. Usually he appeared in a fashion compatible with their circumstances or their calling. For example, to Abraham the pilgrim, Jesus came as a traveler, Genesis 18. But to Jacob the schemer, he came as a wrestler in Genesis 32. Before General Joshua attacked Jericho, Jesus came as the captain of the Lord's armies in Joshua chapter 5. To Isaiah, he revealed himself as the king on the throne, Isaiah chapter 6. But to the two Jewish exiles, referring to Daniel and also to John, who's exiled on Patmos, the Son of God appears as the glorified priest king that he is. And after seeing the Son of God, both men were given visions of future events that involved the people of God, events that would be difficult to accept and understand. And it's interesting to me that both Daniel and John are praying when these visions are given. And as they pray, it's almost as if the veil that separated the visible from the invisible was temporarily removed. And when it was, both Daniel and John are able to see the one that they had been speaking to in prayer. Ray Steadman says this, that person didn't suddenly appear out of nowhere, but he had been there all the time but had been invisible. Through prayer, the veil that cloaked him from Daniel's eyes was pierced. Daniel's eyes were opened. He saw the invisible world of spiritual beings all around him, and suddenly he beheld the one whose eyes were like flaming torches and whose face shone like the sun in its strength. And folks, let me tell you something right now. One of these days, you're going to see the same thing when you look upon Christ with new eyes, resurrected eyes. When your faith becomes sight. So I believe this is indeed the Son of Man. This is Christ Himself in Daniel chapter 10. And by the way, He's been there all through our study throughout the book of Daniel, hadn't He? He was there in the second chapter in the vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel interpreted. He's the smiting stone that struck Nebuchadnezzar's image and smashed it to pieces. He's the fourth man in the fire in Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of their fiery furnace. He's there in chapter 6 with Daniel in the lion's den, no doubt the one who closes the mouths of those lions to keep them from harming God's servant. He's there in chapter 7 as the glorified son of man who's given everlasting dominion and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. In chapter 9, he's the coming anointed one who's going to be cut off but not for himself. And now for a brief moment in time, Daniel's eyes are opened up and he's able to see a glimpse of the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ as the one who will fight our battles and secure the victory of his own. Isn't that a good word right there? So you feel weighed down in life with conflict? You feel like you're fighting hell by the acre in your life? Listen, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But you see, the thing is, you're already more than a conqueror through him who loved you if you were in Jesus Christ. So what's the reaction then to this encounter that Daniel has? Well, verse 7 says that he alone saw the vision, 
There were some other guys who were there with him. They didn't see the vision, but there was a great trembling that fell on them, and they had to get out of Dodge. They fled to hide themselves. They knew something was going on. They knew that there was this sense of a divine presence, but it made the hair stand up on the back of their necks, and so they fled. Kind of reminds me of the same thing that happened to Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9. You remember when the resurrected Christ appears to Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus road? Bright light appears, and, and there's a voice that speaks to Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Well, you know, the Bible says that the men who were traveling with Saul, they stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Well, the, same th- the same kind of thing is happening here. Daniel is left by himself. No strength is left in him. His appearance is fearfully changed. And literally, the language of the text says that he's brought to ruin by what he saw. It's the same reaction of anybody else in the Bible who has an encounter with the manifested presence of the living God. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter six, he's given a glimpse of majesty. Uh, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up so that the train of his robe filled the temple. What was his reaction to what he saw? He said, woe is me for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So what he saw brought him to his face in humility, recognizing the depth of his own need. The prophet Ezekiel, he's given a similar glimpse of majesty. Ezekiel chapter 1. Uh, he sees, he sees a, a vision of, of cherubim there that's described in that first chapter. And then in verse 26 of Ezekiel chapter 1, he says he saw the likeness of a, th- a throne in appearance like sapphire. Seated above the likeness of that throne was a likeness with human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire all around. Down from his waist, I saw as it was the appearance of fire. There was brightness all around him, like the appearance of the rainbow in the cloud on a day of rain. So was the appearance of brightness all around. And so was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And listen, Ezekiel says, when I saw it, I fell on my face. John has the same encounter. Again, you go back to that Revelation text, verse 17, when he saw... This man in linen, radiant, majestic man. What happened? He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Same thing happens with Daniel here in this chapter. He says in verse 9, I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Now, folks, let me just tell you something. There is no waltzing into the presence of of God. I am so grateful that through the finished work of Jesus Christ, God is my heavenly Father. He's transcendent, and yet He is imminent. He is wholly other, and yet He is Emmanuel, God with us. But there is no casually waltzing into 
the presence of God. Every person who has an encounter with the manifest presence of God in Scripture is painfully made aware of their own weakness and limitations. But you see, the thing is, it's, it's, a, it's a healing cut. It's a healing cut because what it does is it, it opens you up to receive his strengthening touch. If you feel like you've been laid low with the sense of the majesty of God and you've been made painfully aware of your own sin, then listen, that is a healing cut because you need his strengthening touch. He's, he's holy, but aren't you glad, glad that he's also gracious? Amen. He's gonna reach down and touch Daniel. Same thing happens in Revelation chapter one as the glorified son of man reaches down and lays his hand upon the apostle John and that's a reassuring touch of grace. That deity would so condescend to humanity, frail, weak, pitiful, and helpless as I am. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so when the manifest presence of God shows up in power like this, there's not a shred of human pride that's left behind in its wake. And folks, when we see the glorified Christ for who he truly is, again, we're going to see ourselves for who we are sinful and in need of his mercy and grace. And you know, if there's anything that we need to recapture in our day in the church, it's the sense of the weight of God's glory. The holiness, the awesomeness of God. You know, we use that word awesome a lot, don't we? We, we, we take that same word, and I think sometimes the English, you know, English language is so bland, and sometimes there just aren't appropriate words to describe things that are truly awesome. You know? Waffle fries from Chick-fil-A are awesome. <laughs> but they pale in comparison to the awesomeness of a sunset or a sunrise coming up in the Atlantic. And all of that pales in comparison to the awesomeness that Daniel is privileged to see here in this 10th chapter, something of the majesty and the power of Almighty God and Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now don't you find it amazing that Daniel has had this experience toward the end of his life? He's above 80, 85 years old at this point in his life. He's a man who's walked with God for many years and yet there's this tenderness and sensitivity in his life towards spiritual things. I mean, very often, I can't help but think that the older that we get, sometimes the more set in our ways we become. And if we're not careful, we can become calloused and we can become indifferent when, when the more that we grow as believers, the more tender we ought, to be, we ought to become and the more open we ought to be to the things of God. And in that way, we're going to be that much more open and tender when it comes to our relationships with one another. You know, Jesus said the two greatest commandments is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the closer you are in your life to Almighty God, then that means that 
the more you're going to demonstrate love and patience and humility and grace in your relationships with those made in his image. And so I think that's what's happening here in Daniel's life. This man who's walked with God throughout all of his days in Babylon, now listen, now now he's able to see what others can't see. He's able to hear what others can't hear. And he's able to stand when everyone else has run away. If there's something that we desperately need in these days, it's men and women who know God. And I'm not just talking about in an academic sense. You can't reduce God to a test tube. Are you listening to me? Knowledge of God is not something that you get in a classroom, not just through simply reading a book. Yeah, there's all kinds of things. Thank God we learn, we study. But let me tell you something. There is a personal, intimate knowledge of God that can be had with the person who spends time in fellowship with him. God says, draw near to me, and I'm going to draw near unto you. Do you know him in an intimate, experiential way? So here's the thing. Daniel is going to be drawing near to God. He's going to to have a vision of glory and majesty, and God's going to give him one final vision of the future as it relates to his people. And it all begins with Daniel being given a glimpse of God himself. Now one final thing, I'm not even gonna get to this this morning, but let me just give it to you. There's an angelic conflict. An angelic conflict that Daniel is let in on that had been happening during that 21 day period in which Daniel had been praying and fasting. For three weeks he's been mourning, fasting, praying, hadn't taken a bath. He's been wrestling in prayer. And I imagine he was wondering where the answer was. You ever been there? Have you ever been wrestling with God over a matter? Have you been praying and asking God for a certain thing, but you just didn't seem to be getting any answers? Well, let me tell you, it's not, it's not for lack of God not being able to hear. Because when you pray in faith, let me tell you, God hears immediately. And sometimes there are delays that happen in that unseen realm. And that's what Daniel's going to learn happens. Because for 21 days, Daniel's going to learn of an angelic conflict that was happening in that heavenly realm. As unseen forces were doing battle with one another, and somehow Daniel's prayer life had a lot to do with it. You mean you believe in angels, Pastor Brandon? Yeah, I do. Because they're there in the pages of Scripture from cover to cover. And somehow these principalities influence worldly powers that be. Sinful empires of man. Behind man's corroded thrones and kingdoms are unseen demonic powers that wage war against the holy angels. And I'll tell you something, I think a lot of that's been happening in our culture, in America. And all the division and all of the animosity that we see that's being played out along political lines, 
racial lines and all of that, that's just symptomatic. It's symptomatic of something much more sinister, but much more unseen that's been going on in the unseen realms. Well, I gotta stop here this morning. We'll come back to that. Would you stand with me for prayer? Let me tell you, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament comes from 2 Kings chapter 6. The king of Syria had been greatly assaulting the king of Israel. But every time he would level some type of attack against the Israelites, it was almost as if the Israelites knew what was going to happen and how he was going to attack. And so the king of Syria thought that he had a spy that there was a conspiracy among those in his own ranks. But finally, one of the servants of the king of Syria spoke up and said, no, listen, there's no spy here. But what's going on is that there's this prophet in Israel named Elisha. And he tells the king of Syria every word that you speak in your bedroom. <laughs> and so the king of Syria says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my finest army with chariots, horses, military might. We're going to track down this man of God. We're going to kill him. They find him in the town of Dothan. So by night, the king of Syria has the town of Dothan surrounded by his military forces, chariots, his army. Early the next morning, the servant of Elisha gets up, I guess probably to get breakfast ready or something. And when he looks out, he sees the little town of Dothan absolutely surrounded by enemy forces. And it sends him into a panic. He runs to the man of God and tells the man of God what's going on. When much to his surprise, Elisha just calmly responds. He says, don't, don't fear. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now imagine the servant of the man of God probably thought, now, old man, you're, you're crazy. Your prophecies are good, but your math is terrible. We're just two lowly servants here in this small little town, and the whole Syrian army has surrounded this town. And then the Bible says that Elisha begins to pray and says, Lord, would you just open his eyes? And lo and behold, the invisible is made visible for the servant of Elisha, and he's able to see chariots of fire surrounding the enemy. And folks, listen, the same thing would be true in my life and your life in the heat of conflict. You get weary, you get discouraged, you're frustrated. They that be for us outnumber those who are against us. And listen, if God be for us, who can be against us? The battle is the Lord's. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. And God, we stand amazed in your presence this morning, overwhelmed with the sense of your majesty. Words can't even begin to describe the beauty of the God who calls us his own. Lord, would you open our eyes and help us to see the true nature of conflict in life. Lord, I'm all too prone to want to judge my circumstances and cave into fear and anxiety, discouragement. 
But Lord, if just for one split second the veil was pierced and we were able to see into that unseen realm, we'd see that that's where the battle really is and that in Jesus Christ we're on the winning side. And we'd take prayer so much more seriously than we do. The gathered church would become so much more important than it is now. The preaching of your word, the teaching of your word, the sharing of the gospel, those that are lost. God, we would all engage that so much more so if we truly understood the nature of the conflict. So God, help us understand. Help us to see for Christ's sake. Lord, for those who perhaps are participating today, those who are here, those who are watching, who've never yet, they've not yet entered into a personal relationship with Christ through repentance and faith, Lord, may they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today who died for their sins, who loves them more than they could ever possibly know, who rose again, and who will forgive and give eternal life to those who trust in him. Lord, we love you and we make our prayer today in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.